Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, I know that you will join April and I when we say that we were both very sad to hear about the fact that Miss Mary Wilson passed away last week at the age of 76 years old. Yes, I was a little heartbroken. I texted you right away and I was like, oh no. So, and uh, you know, of course, Miss Mary was a founding member of the iconic American singing group, The Supremes. She was there at the beginning of the group in the 1950s and was the last original member in the group when it officially disbanded in 1977. And she went on to a career as a solo performer, motivational speaker, author, and perhaps unsuspecting archivist. Yes, because Miss Mary took it upon herself to preserve the supreme sartorial legacy, and her collection of the group's stunning performance ensembles served as the foundation of her 2019 book, co-authored with Mark Bago, Supreme Glamour. And April, I mean, we feel so honored to have celebrated our 100th full-length episode of Dressed with Miss Mary herself. She came on last season, of course, to share with us her incredible stories behind the Supreme's singular style. She truly was an inspiring and wonderful woman whose legacy will undoubtedly live on for generations to come. Thank you for joining us, Dress listeners, in this listen back at our time with the one, the only, Miss Mary Wilson. We are super excited to have Miss Mary Wilson with us today. Miss Mary, welcome to Dressed. Thank you so much, and I'm glad to be with you. (laughs) Yeah, uh, this is truly an honor to have you here today. And I have to say, I have not been this excited about a book in a very long time. I've I've read a lot of fashion history books, and and this one is is so beautifully written. Uh, It's so beautifully illustrated, so many stories, so much... um, you know, love and friendship. And of course, there's so much fashion in this book. Um, It's such a beautiful homage to your time in the Supremes and the clothing that was part and parcel to that uh, experience. So I'm curious, what inspired you to write this wonderful book? Wow. Well, it was fairly easy because I had already written books about the Supremes. So therefore, you know, it was one of the things where my research was not as, it didn't take as long because I had so much research from the other books. And, you know, writing about the Supremes in our biography and and talking about how much we had accomplished in, in our career, it was a pleasure to actually sit down now and do something, not just write about the book, but to show pictures and, and, and the looks and what was behind the singing, which was more fashion. So for me, it was really a lot of fun sort of demonstrating what we did in not just from recording and the music, but how we looked and how we felt when we wore certain gowns. And so it was all about the gowns. The gowns are on tour now, just like we were on tour all those years. And many of them are in your personal collection, correct? You have, I think in the book, there's over 24 sets of matching onstage ensembles. So not just one of the dresses, but all three of the dresses. Um, 
how did you go about comprising this collection? Well, uh, first of all, we the Supremes, Florence Ballard, Donna Ross, and I would always travel. And when we came home from the road, we'd have to like store the gowns. And then we'd, of course, buy new gowns or designers would bring us new gowns. And some of the older gowns that we had made, perhaps worn on television, uh, we would just store them. And uh, they accumulated throughout all the years, right? Uh, and as, as you know, Florence was no longer in the group, Diane was no longer in the group, and then we had the 70s Supremes. Um, and I became sort of like the keeper of, of everything and the manager of the Supremes and all those different things. So I, yeah, I accumulated the gowns because of that. And whenever anyone would leave, uh, as you know, a couple of them did, I would end up with all these gowns. Because wow. no one could take the gowns. No one could take the gowns with them because, you know, we the Supremes as a group uh, paid for them. And that's how I ended up with the majority of the gowns. Now, all of the gowns should be in my possession. But uh, the reason that I can't tell you how many I have is because so many have been not just lost, and I won't say stolen, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, things have just disappeared. And then some of the places we had them stored, you know, I don't, I couldn't figure out where everything was stored. And so I've, all these years after the Supremes, I have just been uh, trying to recover those gowns that are, you know, not in my collection. But it really is my collection because, as I said, when Florence and Diane left, everything was left to me. I also should say that even though they were left to me and I had their set of three, uh, sometimes I ended up with just one. But the, all three gowns were of the set were supposedly with me. Ah, and you're still like you said you're actively tracking or able to still track some of these pieces down. I saw a I'm not sure what the name of the TV show is, but it was on BBC where this woman found yeah. one of your costumes in a garage sale or something of that like in London. Well, the thing about it is we've bought gowns that uh, some of the fans have called or emailed me and said, Mary, guess what? We have, we, we think that a couple of your gowns are on sale on eBay. And wow. I'm like, oh, really? So then uh, we would try to get together and uh, email each other. And I'm, I'd look at them and that's it. So a couple of fans actually bought the <laughs> gowns for me off eBay and got them for me. Uh, the ones that you were speaking of in uh, London, the young lady was traveling in, uh, I think it was France, and she saw this um, sale, like a garage. We call them garage sales here. Right. Uh, there, I think they call it the boot sales or something like that. <laughs> and uh, so she saw this beautiful gown, and uh, she went and she bought it. But she didn't realize it was uh, a, a Supreme gown. So after she bought it and she saw the label, it had my name on it. Wow. And that's... That's when she realized, wow, you know, uh, this is this is uh, this is kind of fantastic. And somehow <laughs> or another, BBC or someone got in touch with me and and told me about the story. So we we established my coming over to when I was coming over to England to actually uh, uh, the book was coming out at the time. So we set up, set up a meeting and we I met her. She came to the station. We spoke and she gave me the gown back. Wow. So that was really, it was a wonderful thing. And it was one of our gowns that we wore on the Tennessee Williams TV special. Uh, however, what the strange part about that is that it was only half of the gown because the gown was a two-piece gown. It had a, a leotard, like a, a, like a bathing suit type top. And then it had a skirt 
that came off. And then there was a hat to it as well. So I don't know where the skirt and the hat is. <laughs> I'm still looking for that. <laughs> Maybe those surely will show up in the future. Um, right. And, you know, there is another set that uh, really fabulous, fabulous outfit in the, in the book. Uh, I'm not sure what page it's on here. Is a um, a picture of the pants set, but it's it was a suit that had a coat, a jacket, and the pants, and it was completely beaded in bugle beads. And there wow. were three different colors. One color was gold. I think Diane's was gold, and and Cindy and I, mine were orange. And it was all beaded. Well, the jacket disappeared. And it disappeared from the designer Pat Campano's studio. So uh, I, that that <laughs> one disappeared. And I, so I have the, the pants set, but I don't have the jacket. So the jackets are floating around someplace. And it's amazing because a lot of times they end up being in an exhibit. And so we, you know, we know where certain things are, but we can't find out who gave them mm, uh, the gown. Interesting. And, uh, so, yeah. So, but but the orange jackets have never shown up. <laughs> so, you know, who knows? Maybe yeah. someone listening will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that, and, yeah, that was in. I think that. Yeah, not think. I know it was in San Francisco that they disappeared. Hmm. And we're going to yeah. talk uh, a lot more about your beautiful beaded ensembles um, in a minute. Uh, but I kind of am hoping we can go back a little bit uh, to the maybe the sure. beginning. You were, um, before you were the Supremes, you were the Primettes, um, yourself, Flo, and Diana. And I believe that was when Barbara was still in the group. It, no, it was actually, uh, Barbara was the second person. Betty McGlon was the original primate with us that made the four. And Betty was a little older than uh, Diane, Flo, and I. So uh, she even, she got married very early, and we had to replace her. And that's when Barbara uh, oh, okay. Martin came into the group. Yeah, yeah. And and you write a lot about, I mean, this is what's so wonderful about the book is you kind of take us to the beginning and you take us throughout the career trajectory of the Supremes. Uh, but you write about, you know, these early times, you're young, you're, I think, 15 or 16, and you're hanging around Motown hoping for your big break. And that finally comes in 1961 when you signed with the record label. Uh, and it's often been said, and you write about this, that Barry Gordy and Motown took the primates and remade them into the Supremes. But you talk about this a couple different times in the book, how you all came to Motown with your own unique sense of style and self. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more about, you know, where that style came from. Yes, when we came there, we were already sort of in a stylish mode, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, but I give the credit to, to Mr. Gordy and, and Motown for seeing that we had a certain different kind of style, that we were kind of, I, I grew up watching people like Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge and one of my favorite people, Doris Day, and so we all kind of wanted to be grown up, uh, you know, yeah. so we were girly girls. <laughs> So we, we, so we always dressed up, you know, we, we really, really did dress up. And I, I think people may, some people may have even laughed at us because we were so, you know, we, we really were trying to be adults <laughs> and we were clearly very young. But yeah, so this was something that we did kind of bring to Motown, our own way of dressing, our own idea of what worked for us as a group too, as well. And what was great is that we all kind of had the same type of uh, idea of what we wanted to wear. 
So it was really, a, how can I say, our image was our image, and it, we, we were not remade or we were not made right. to look glamorous. And yeah, you naturally possessed that. And I think you write about too that yourself and Diana actually made a lot of your dresses in these early days. Yes, 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 yes. Diane and I, well, first of all, Diane actually studied uh, dress design. I guess I'm saying the right way what she studied, but she her school was Cass Tech in Detroit, Michigan, and it was more of a college preparatory uh, type of school. So they had a lot of uh, different kinds of classes in dressmaking, and that's what Diane was part of. And so, yeah, so she, she was really the one who was better at that than I, because I just kind of learned how to sew and, and because uh, we were we were poor. And uh, a lot of times we had to make our little outfits at home or, or my mom had a little sewing machine. So, you know, we did a lot of that just at home. But also in our school back then, education was really great because just generally we had home economics and the guys had uh, shops. So we learned sort of things like that in school. Anyway, Diana and I got together and, and, and decided we, were, you know, we wanted to kind of make our own little outfits. And we went to, I think it was Woolworths or wherever, and bought Butterwick patterns and made our, you know, our our little dresses. So yeah, we did that. Uh, we I think we maybe made two, <laughs> two sets, I two sets, two sets, which was really good. In fact, I was, I'm looking here at one, at this little postcard. It's a little like the boys' baseball cards they used to have. And Barbara's on this, and uh, I think that outfit there, we made those, I'm sure. So, yeah, so that was something we did. <laughs> and as, 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 as I said, Diane was definitely much better at it than I, I was, but uh, we did it. So you all came to Motown with your own personal sense of style, uh, but you also write in the book how Motown really gave you all an education and how to become a star. And you talk about one woman in particular, former model Mrs. Maxine Powell. Miss Mary, can you tell us about how what her role was in assisting with kind of this transformation that they had planned for you? Motown... Motown um, Records was really one of the greatest record companies because they offered us so much in terms of not only just recording music, but they had a department called Artist Development. And in, in the Artist Development program, they had several people who had been actually professional in their trade. So one was Mr. Maurice King, and he, he was a big band leader who had retired. So he taught us harmony and things of that nature for our songs. We had Charlie Atkins, who had been a vaudeville dancer, and uh, Honey and Coles, he was called with his partner. Then, of course, there was Miss Maxine Powell, who had been a, a model and had her own modeling school in Detroit. So she and uh, Charlie Atkins were the ones who really gave us what we needed in terms of, of being professional and how to look uh, in public. So uh, what happened was Mrs. Powell would teach us not so much about etiquette because she said, you should learn how to use spoons and forks at home. You know, I'm not here to do that, but I'm, I'm showing you how to, to have inner beauty or to know your inner beauty. In fact, she said to us once, you girls are just diamonds in the rough and we're here to polish you. 
So she was that type of a, of, of a person, like the Hollywood studios when they trained and taught their, uh, all the people, the wonderful people. So they taught them this. And so we had that same type of training at Motown. And that's really what, what Mrs. Powell kind of taught us, how to, to sit in, on a stool and give an interview. Uh, and I even see sometimes now on the television, many females are, are anchor women now. And they'll sit on stools and they'll have their legs these beautiful shoes on and beautiful dresses, short dresses, and they have the legs all kind of, ugh. And this is something that <laughs> Mrs. Powell taught us very early on when you sit, you and your, your your mama used to tell us this as well, keep your knees together, you know. But your legs, it should be very crossed at the ankles. And if you're going to cross them at the, at the knee, then make sure that when you do that, they're, your knees are closed together. Those are little things. She taught us how to get in and out of limousines gracefully. Uh, and these are all things that we were taught when we were 16 years old at Motown Records. So those are the type of things that, you know, we, we learned in the artist development department. That's what it was called. And in these kind of early years, was there, were you all still shopping and buying your own clothes? Or was uh, there some, like a stylist who was helping you at this point? When we first started, we actually were our own stylists. <laughs> In fact, uh, yeah, every, everything we wore, pretty much, we, we shopped and bought them at either Saks Fifth Avenue, some small boutiques they had in Detroit. Uh, we didn't actually start wearing uh, couture gowns that designers made for us until we started doing major TV shows. That was probably 1965. Mm-hmm. And uh, from then on, these various designers that the studios at that, at, in, in those days had their own designers there. So, um, we, you know, they would come to us and bring us these beautiful designer uh, pictures there and sketches. And boy, I mean, we're, wow, that's when we started actually, uh, you know, wearing more of the couture gowns. Oh, my gosh. And your book is chock full of these incredibly beautiful, incredibly beautiful yeah. ensembles, the craftsmanship. We, yeah. The and you know, you know what's really great. Yes, is that that's so great because the, the designers that were used were also designers. Not they didn't just design for TV, but they designed for for the movie theaters. And so they were really, you know, they knew what they were doing. In in the book, what I tried to do as well in Supreme Glamour, I tried to do was to give a close up look at some of the gowns and show how intricate. It was. I mean, there were many, many artisans who created this beadwork, and a lot of them came from Europe, and some of the women have passed on now, but there are a couple who are still alive, and I actually had a chance to interview them. But if you'll go on page, I think it's 98, there's a close-up of the um, one of our gowns. It's a green gown, mm-hmm. and it's all bugle-beaded. It's all bugle-beaded, right? So the, the, what the beauty of this is that we call them the green swirls because the beading was done on a fabric, a sheer fabric, and it followed the design, the pattern on the on the, on wow. the uh, fabric. So if you look, you can look closely. That's why I took a, I to have them take pictures of gowns up close so people can actually see every little bead there. From a distance, it looks like maybe that's just you know, the, the the print of the fabric. But these are beads. I mean, there must be millions of beads on the It's gowns. incredible. And, and the artisans who made them, you know, that they spent hours and hours and hours 
feeding bees, putting all those little bugle bees on there. Uh, so it's really, I, I was very happy I was, you know, able to do that, uh, to show the bee, the bee, because a lot of people only saw us on television, so they never really saw the, the really beauty of these gowns up close. Yeah, so I think there's something like 30 different sets of dresses that you feature. And so the ones you're talking about um, are the designed by Michael Travis from 68, screen-printed full yard gown and screen-printed chiffon cape. And then you give notes about when it was worn, um, who wore it. uh, And then, like you just said, those incredible close-up details of the amount of artistry and beauty that went into these dresses that, like you said, you wouldn't normally see on television. If you were to try to buy one of these gowns now... Oh, my goodness. Uh, you, you couldn't even afford it. I, and I looked at I look at some of the Academy Awards and the Grammys in places where uh, the young ladies are wearing these fabulous gowns now. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they, they're worth so much money, you know. But these gowns, I mean, you can even buy this today and, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the amount of money it would cost. And, and the beading work sometimes is done not by hand, but yet still you're paying a high price out there. With these, they're all done by hand. Yeah, There's nothing that's machine-made. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, and you mentioned 1965, you started appearing on TV. By 1966, the Supremes had released their 10th studio album. You were already an international sensation, I think, traveling the world at this point. And you write in the book that, as we've kind of just discussed, that high fashion really paralleled that rocket to stardom. And you started marrying, wearing more and more haute couture. And I think you write that, quote, you were fashionably attired, nicely made up, and in full Supreme mode 24-7. And you write about your trademark three-part harmonies, but also your trademark style, because you guys really did become known for what you wore. And it was like we just discussed, these identical, elaborately beaded or fringed or sequined floor-length gowns. There is one designer that I just mentioned that I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about, um, because the designer, Michael Travis, I think you said, was at one point your personal designer, designing uh, specifically for the Supremes beginning in the 19, I think, late 1960s? Well, we started actually uh, wearing gorgeous gowns in 1964. Uh, we, you know, we were purchasing them from various places like uh, Saks. I think I mentioned that earlier. And traveling around the world in these great gowns. So um, that was 1964. When In 1965 or so, we started obviously doing higher-end shows like Ed Sullivan's show, you know, things like that. And we did the Top of the Pops in London, England. So we were wearing all these beautiful things. And, and when we met Michael Travis in uh, New York, he was in New York at the time, he started uh, designing for us. But Michael Travis was actually prior to Bob Mackey. So what what happened was he also designed for many other people. I mean, he designed for Dionne Warwick, Nancy Wilson, Liberace. So he was not our personal designer, but we used him because he always brought the right things that we liked. Then when, I'm not sure if he moved out to L.A. or we, we were traveling so much and doing different shows. We did shows out in Los Angeles, Hollywood. So there were other designers that came up aboard, and that's when we met Bob Mackey who then created more gowns for us. So it depended on the time frame in terms of where, what TV shows we were doing. And this is really where we really ended up meeting 
the majority of our uh, designers was whenever we did a TV show, we would meet someone new. And they would bring some other type of uh, looks for us. Another person that designed, uh, there was a woman that designed for us very early on. And she, we met in San Francisco. San Francisco is coming up a lot. Uh, LaVita <laughs> was her name. And uh, she kind of came up to us. We were working at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco. And usually, back in those days, we would do show. We would be at a, a, a one club for like a week, you know, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. Uh, and so Levita came to one of our shows, and she came. She said, "I, I have some designs I want to show you." And uh, so she did, and we liked what she what she did, and so we used her for a couple of designs. It was really great because she was in couture too. So all of our design designers were make couture gowns. Uh, Lavita was one of the only female designers that we actually used because she, you know, she kind of was very persistent. <laughs> and I think that she also designed for one of the presidents, uh, one of the president's wives. I'm not sure which president it was at the time, which wife. But anyway, yeah, so we, we used a lot of different uh, designers. And Michael Travis was one of my favorites. All guys were my favorites, actually. But he designed probably more gowns than most of the other other designers for us. And I'm so glad you mentioned LaVita actually, because that, I think that was definitely one of my favorite looks in the book. I, it's really hard to pick favorites, but she, ha you have these mm -hmm. yellow trench coats, moiré taffeta trench coats that she designed that are fabulous. They're so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they actually, there's actually, it, it's a three piece. Uh, uh, let's see, one, two, no, it's a two-piece. And it, everyone thinks that they're yellow, but they act because they've kind of faded over the years, but they actually are, are a lemon color. Oh. And uh, they're made, they're satin uh, coats that she designed with uh, bead work on the lapels and at the bottom, the hemline and the sleeve. Um, and, but the gowns that go with the coats were a wool. They were very lightweight wool. And they were pleated, uh, which is actually kind of nice because on the outside of the pleat, they're beads all the way down to the from the waist to the floor. So, and then the top is like a halter top with uh, completely beaded. And yeah, it was really really fun to wear those. But yeah, it it has faded over the years, so it does look a little. The, the color is not as the same. <laughs> <laughs> they really were lime green, and the beating was also green, so there you go. Do you have, looking back over all of these dresses that you wore, do you have a favorite dress or ensemble that you wore, or is it just too hard to pick? Well, I have 11 grandchildren, so it's something as a mom and a grandmom, you don't, you, you can't say your favorite. <laughs> uh, but but there, there, are, there are some that, yes, wonderful, the, the memories and what they meant when we wore them. Right. Was so significant that you can say that one was definitely one of the ones that stand out. And that would be our Queen Mother gowns that we wore at our um, command performance in, in England for the Queen Mother. Wow. And what I find so wonderful about many of these dresses is they're really designed to move with you. You know, so much of what you guys did was these choreographed movements and you have gowns with butterfly sleeves and, you know, dripping beads and fringe coming down. And, you know, you can tell the designers really took into account what 
you were going to be doing when you wore these dresses? I mean, they were really meant to just kind of floor you, I think. (laughs) Well, I mentioned earlier our choreographer, Charlie Atkins, who had a lot to do with that as well, because he gave us the type of movement that really brought out the the movement of the gown. So whenever he would uh, choreograph, say, Stop in the Name of Love or baby love, the hand movement would be the main thing. And if the gown was tight, uh, you know, he would have us moving in such a way where it really showed off the, the lines of the gown. He and Ms. Maxine Powell worked in concert with us on, on those kind of things because, you know, she would say, well, I don't want the girls to be bending over too much and showing their buttocks. <laughs> she had, she, she had a, a really funny way of uh, expressing herself. And we always, at 17, we would laugh at her. But, you know, we knew that she knew what she was talking about. And it was, we were just kind of being teenage girls and we would laugh at her behind her back. So, <laughs> uh, you know, but she proved, she proved to really give us something that I, has lasted me all my life. I'm very proud of that. But yes, it was between the two of them, uh, Charlie Atkins and Maxine Powell, that showed us how to really move gracefully in the gown. Um, So I just have a couple more questions, um, because you write in the book that what the Supremes wore truly mattered. You know, the Supremes inspired this entire generation of young women who grew up watching you, young girls, right? Um, Whoopi Goldberg actually wrote an incredibly moving preface to the book. I'm just going to read a couple uh, lines from it. She said, everything about the Supremes, all those gowns, all those pantsuits, all those caps, gloves, furs, the makeup, the eyelashes, the wigs, made me believe they they were speaking to me. I too could be well-spoken, tall, majestic, an emissary of Black folks who also came from the projects. And then she goes on to say, I look back and wonder if they had any idea that they taught me and a new generation the pride of being Black. Diana, Mary, and Flo are my heroes. So did you have any idea at the time um, what the success and visibility of the Supremes meant? Well, first of all, when I when I asked uh, Miss Whoopi Goldberg to write the foreword for my book, I wanted to have someone who was there when we were going through our career, and what 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 Whoopi wrote was exactly what we didn't really realize at the time. We, I mean, I can't speak for the other two ladies. Uh, well, I can't speak for Diane. Um, Florence had passed away in 1976, so I can't speak for her. But the thing that I felt was that we, as three black girls who had grown up poor but had a dream, accomplished our dreams. And those dreams were not easy to accomplish because we're talking about a time when, especially in America and even worldwide, uh, you know, blacks just were not considered to be equal to anyone else. It's kind of like what what we're going through here now when, you know, certain people are being oppressed and, and, and treated badly. So it was back then, it was the black people's time to be treated badly. Right. And um, we became stars, we became divas, and we became citizens almost within the same year. That was 1965, the Civil Rights Bill. 64, 65 during that time. And so to know, we didn't know exactly, I'm speaking for myself, I should say, I didn't know exactly uh, that we were reaching people in that manner, the way Whoopi explained it. But I did know that 
from what my mom and my aunts and everyone in the black community felt, and that is that we were not as good as the next person. Yeah. So when when we became famous and and started traveling the world and we were treated like royalty, and then even here in America now, uh, you know, we were treated differently. I remember uh, a young, beautiful Jewish lady came to see us uh, in, in uh, Puerto Rico, I think it was, at the Eden Rock Hotel or Fontainebleau, one of the two. And, and after one of the shows, she came up to me and she said, I'm so happy to see you guys, and I just want you to know that I allow my, my family and my children and everyone to watch you. We sit up and watch you on Ed Sullivan every Sunday night. This is my brother, who was a wanna, he was, he hates when I say this, he was a wannabe Panther, Black Panther, right? He had been, he was in the <laughs> Vietnam War, and he was over in Santo Domingo and flew over to Miami to see us during that time. And he was standing there, he says, Mary, what does she mean she allows her family to watch you when she's on TV? I'm like, Roosevelt, hey, look, the Civil Rights Bill was just passed a couple of years ago. You know, before that, people did not like to look at black people on TV. So, you know, I, it was a, for me, it was a compliment. And yeah, we, you know, we knew in our hearts and soul, we understood that we had done something or we were doing something phenomenal and that people were watching. But maybe at the time, I think we were just having fun ourselves and doing what, using our gifts that God gave us. And I don't think I was thinking about what the people were thinking. I was thinking about what I was thinking. You know, right. wow, this is fun. And so now some, I'm, I'll be 75 next month, and I, I, I look back and I'm still having fun. So how blessed and how fortunate I am to have been, you know, blessed to have this, 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 this be in, in the Supreme and to have this happen. And, and people all over the world, you know, know our music. Yeah, now I see. But back then, we, I was just having fun. Right. And that, I mean, part of that being that glamorous and being so wonderful was what was so, you know, wonderful about what you were doing. Representation is so important and you guys were doing it so in style, I should say, all over the world. Um, and as you mentioned, right in the middle of the civil rights movement. So uh, just, I guess, one more question for you, because so Flo left the group in 67, and I think Diana left to go solo in 1970, which left you as the only um, founding member left in the quote-unquote new Supremes. But the Supremes continued to perform into 1977, where you start seeing all these fabulous fringed beaded pantsuits that I just cannot get enough of. And as you mentioned, uh, you're going to be 75 next week. You're still traveling the world. Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry, I'll be 76. I may have said 75. (laughs) I'll be 76. (laughs) My fault. It's okay. You'll be 76 (laughs) next month. Um, And you're still performing all over the world. You know, you you went on this incredibly successful solo career. You mentioned uh, the multiple books you've written. Supreme Glamour uh, is, is a beautiful extension of that. You're also a motivational speaker. I'm just curious, how has clothing continued to form your sense of self into today? Well, clothing for me, I mean, I, mean I, I, I have fun all the time. That's the kind of person I am. But also, I'm who I am is like Papa used to say, I am what I am, you know. I'm, that's just who I am. I love to dress. My background vocalist said to me the other day, Mary, every time you stand up, you're posing. I'm like, I'm not posing. That's just the way I stand. <laughs> You know, so I think, and, and, you know, if 
you see Diane, she, you know, she's always gorgeous. That's just who we are. We like we like to look good. I don't know if it's something. I don't try. It's just that's what I that's who I am. I, you know, that's what I do. I and even uh, my home and my my office. I mean, I like beauty around me. So that's just my vibe. Uh, and you mentioned in, in the we were wearing these bell bottoms and the pantsuits in the late seventies, and because time was changing, so we always kind of kept up with the times in terms of changing. But it was always in, in a glamorous way. Exactly, uh, in the most glamorous yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, that's just kind of you know what that's that's who we are. <laughs> That was our image. <laughs> and something you carry into the uh, the contemporary times effortlessly, I must say. Uh, Miss Mary, thank you so much for being here. This was truly an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you. Well, I, I hope I, you know, kind of answered all your, your queries about the fashion and everything. And, and uh, I'm very happy that everyone seems to really like the Supreme Glamour in my book. In fact, I have loads of friends who said, I bought five copies and I gave them away for Christmas. And someone said, I gave 16, I gave them away for Valentine's. And I'm like, hey, keep on giving them away. Yep. <laughs> you know, keep on buying them and giving them all as gifts. <laughs> because it is a beautiful, beautiful package. I remember when Pearl Bailey uh, was telling us that she was uh, an ambassador and, and, and she was telling us how, you know, that made her so very proud. And so I'm kind of like, you know what? And now I'm an author and I'm very, very proud too. So, you know, it's really wonderful to to have this and give it to people as something to help them remember when they were younger. And it also helps the younger people today to know what we were doing back then. Everyone stands on someone's shoulder. And I hope that they can see that we the Supreme set trends back in 1960 and they're still following our model. Oh, absolutely. I think the Supremes still remain icons of glamour to this day and will continue to well into the future. And I know that many a dress listener is going to go out and buy this book because honestly, we only touched on a very small amount of, of you know, the wealth of, of stories and images in this book. And I can't say enough good things about it. So thank you for this gift. Thank you. And we should also mention my writer, Mr. Mark Beagle, because he, he was actually responsible for writing most of the text. Well, we did it together, but he wrote it. So I have to give a shout out to Mark Vigo. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Again, we feel so fortunate that, Cass, that you had this chance to talk to Miss Mary, an incredible life and legacy well-lived. And if you want to learn more about Miss Mary's life and her career, dress listeners, she's actually written two autobiographies, one entitled Dream Girl, My Life as a Supreme, and the other one is entitled Supreme Faith, Someday We'll Be Together. And of course, we are all indebted to Miss Mary for preserving the Supreme Sartorial legacy for us to enjoy today and well into the future. I highly recommend getting your hands on a copy of Supreme Glamour. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider introducing some of Miss Mary Wilson's Supreme Glamour into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. Remember to join us Tuesday for our full-length episode. And we do love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you'll find images to accompany each week's episode. 
And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.